I have yet to meet one vegan entrepreneur that didn't have more than a money mission, you know, that had like this more altruistic mission. And that includes, you know, Ethan Brown, Patrick Brown, all those guys. Uh, I believe they're mission oriented too. And, and the mission is important because it really keeps you going when the going gets tough and gets you to your toe-perky moment. Welcome to the Business for Good podcast, a show where we spotlight companies making money by making the world a better place. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and if you share a passion for using commerce to solve many of the world's most pressing problems, then this is the show for you. Hello, friends, and welcome to the 39th episode of Business for Good. I've been heartened by many of the listeners contacting me asking about what is going on with little Eddie, the foster pit bull who my wife Tony and I have taken in from our local animal shelter in Sacramento, California after it was shut down. And many people have asked, is Eddie going to become a foster fail or maybe it should be called a foster success, but will he be converted from our foster dog simply to our dog? Well, my friends, I'm happy to report there is a silver lining to this pandemic for our family, at least, which is that little Eddie has indeed become our dog. And amazingly, The Guardian even did a feature on him, making him the poster dog for pandemic pups uh, who are being uh, either adopted or at least fostered during the pandemic for people to have companions during shelter in place and who are trying to help out with the animal shelters that are being shut down during this time. So, uh, if you want to check out the little photos of Eddie or if you want to see his story, we'll include the Guardian article about him in the show notes of this episode. Now, speaking of this episode, I want you to imagine just how much work it takes to write a book. And then imagine all the work that it takes to prepare for that book's launch and how important media attention on your book is when it launches. And then imagine that just a few weeks before your big launch, a global pandemic hits, shutting down society and dominating all news coverage from morning till night. Sadly, that is the fate of Seth Tibbet, the OG of the plant-based meat space, the founder of Tofurky, the man who helped blaze the trail that led to the explosion in popularity that plant-based meat is enjoying today. When Seth started out, as he notes, his big expertise was really losing money year after year selling tempeh. But through that long winter of losses, Seth ended up building a household name brand that today is said to be worth $100 million. Seth has written a fascinating autobiography that chronicles his unusual life and his unlikely success as a hippie-turned-entrepreneur 40 years ago. It's called In Search of the Wild Tofurky, How a Business Misfit Pioneered Plant-Based Foods Before They Were Cool. And as luck would have it, his book comes out in April 2020, right in the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. That's all anyone wants to talk about, and understandably so, of course. Well, if you're listening to this show, you likely don't need to be reminded that this particular pandemic is born out of humanity's exploitation of animals, and that other potentially deadlier pandemics are likely to be born out of our risky animal use practices on concentrated animal feeding operations. In fact, I recently wrote a piece for Scientific American about this very topic that we'll also include in the show notes regarding why raising fewer animals for food will reduce the risk of the next pandemic. Seth's life and his career have been devoted to helping lighten humanity's footprint on the planet, including shifting toward plant-based proteins for myriad reasons, including pandemic prevention. So take a moment while sheltering in place and listen to Seth's inspirational story of repeated and repeated business failure followed by enormous success. As someone who released my own book, Clean Meat, a couple years ago, I know how important momentum at a book launch is. So if you like what you hear, Think about ordering a copy of Seth's new book, again, In Search of the Wild Tofurky. It's written with entrepreneurs who want to make a difference in the world as a key target audience. So perhaps that's you. I know I got a lot out of reading it, and I suspect you will too. I now bring you a special pandemic edition of Business for Good with Seth Tibbet. Seth Tibbet, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me, Paul. Hey, it is a real pleasure and honor for us to be talking here. Do you happen to remember, Seth, the very, very first time that we met, which was quite a uh, quite a random meeting? Do you remember this back in D.C.? You know, I may need a refresher course in that. Why don't you give me a, <laughs> a hint there? You were coming out of, up out of the metro on the red line, 
And uh, Josh Balk and I were passing out brochures about plant-based eating, and we were showing videos about it, just like missionaries on the street. Now, do you remember it? Oh, yeah. I got that. I came up out of the uh, escalator, and there right in front of me was Josh handing me a flyer. And then he had this old beat-up van that he had, uh, that I guess you guys had retrofitted with a TV on the side, and there was this big video happening of kind of factory farm scenes and different um, things. It was very impressive. That was like, oh my God, my people. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the year, but I, it was probably around 2001 would be my recollection of when, when we were really doing that back in those days. And for full credit, actually, the person who retrofitted that van is named Eddie Lama, who uh, starred in that movie, The Witness, back then. But he donated that oh, to, yeah. to us, and we ended up using it uh, twice a week, like in DuPont Circle and in other uh, popular DC neighborhoods. So, but you were so kind because, uh, you know, you were a big name already in the plant-based world back then. And you asked us if we had heard of Tofurky. And of course we said we were customers and you said, I'll be back. And remember you brought a whole bunch, like a cooler full of Tofurky that you generously gave to us. And, um, do you remember? Yeah, yeah it was, it was so nice yeah. of you. And it, it was kind of like, we, you know, sometimes if you give a dog a treat, that dog like always loves you and always has a positive affinity for you. We were the dogs, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you know, I had a big affinity for everything that you were doing back then. And yeah, I had been to uh, the Expo East trade show there and uh, we were peddling our wares there and we had some left over. So it was very fortuitous that we could find a, a good home for the Tofurky. And uh, I'm glad that it made it to a good home, just like you are with a dog. <laughs> you always <laughs> want to find a good home for your puppies or children or uh, yeah. your products. So great, um, great meeting. I can assure you it went to a very appreciative home in both of our stomachs. Um, and as, as somebody who uh, has just converted a foster dog to an, uh, to a, my own dog with my wife, Tony, uh, I can assure you that the analogy rings true. So anyway, uh, I know though that in the annals of the Tofurky history, Seth, that, uh, that chance meeting outside of a metro station in DC, of course, uh, is, is a very minor one, but I just read your book, uh, in search of the wild Tofurky. I really yeah. thought, it, thought it was a riveting tale. In fact, it reminded me a little bit of the tale of another entrepreneur from Oregon who started his own successful company, Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, about the founding of uh, Nike. Have you read that? Haven't read it, but he started uh, with a waffle iron in his garage, didn't he? Yeah, well, his co-founder uh, started with a waffle iron in his garage. Oh, yeah. Co-founder was a track, a famous track coach at the time, and uh, and that's that is how they got started. But Shoe Dog really gives the story about how Nike went from you know this idea to near death time and time and time and time again to now a global corporate behemoth, which uh, reminds me a little bit of the story, maybe not global corporate behemoth, but certainly a big name in the plant-based space and the, one of the OGs of plant protein, uh, as the book yeah. subtitle says, before it was cool. Um, so, you know, you mentioned in the book, Seth, that one of the inspirations for you to even start thinking about plant-based eating was reading Francis Morla Pay's Diet for a Small Planet. So tell me about that and what impact that book had on you and why. Yeah, so the year was 1971, I believe, when I first read Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Morla Pay, and I was a student in Ohio at Wittenberg University near Antioch, and I was learning the ropes of elementary education then, but I was more interested in kind of minoring in outdoor education and uh, natural history. And it made such complete sense to me that, you know, Ohio especially used to be all trees. They used to say a squirrel could jump from Pennsylvania all the way to Indiana without touching ground. And by the time I got there in the 1970s, you know, it was probably 85% farmland. And so the, it, the wildlife habitat was being encroached on. And after reading the book by Frances Morlapay, she was the first one to point out, you know, the inefficiency of 
uh, feeding grain, you know, through animals, and you put 16 pounds of grain or whatever into uh, making, you know, a very small, like one pound or less of protein. And uh, that struck home with me because I was like, oh, if there was a more efficient way of getting protein to the people, if we were eating low on the food chain, there'd be more natural wildlife space for uh, all these birds and animals that I love so much. So that was really what um, started out this whole journey for me was that and a meal of lentils, rice, and onions from my friend Laurel McGowan, who was this quiet uh, art student. And, you know, it, it really drove home to me that, hey, this is delicious. I could live this way. And a couple of years later, another groundbreaking book for me was Stephen Gaskin's book about the farm, which was an intentional community or commune in Tennessee, where they had 1,200 hippies living on 1,600 acres of farmland that they had bought. Uh, and they were growing all these soybeans, but they didn't know what to do with them. So this guy, one of the farm members who was a PhD microbiologist, Alexander Lyon, he got sent to the NIH laboratories and libraries in Bethesda, Maryland, and he found all these soy foods, but particularly he found this one that was called tempeh, which was an Indonesian fermented food. And it was, uh, you know, uh, very interesting to him as a microbiologist. So he wrote to Dr. Clifford Hesseltine in uh, Cornell and Dr. Wang in the Northern Regional Research Lab in Peoria, Illinois. And he got some of this magic tempeh starter, brought it back to the farm, and it just went crazy. It went viral. like <laughs> People couldn't have enough of it. Now, mind you, the farm was not a vegetarian community. It was what they called themselves a pure vegetarian community which today we would say is a vegan community. But back then, they billed themselves as a pure vegetarian. And they said a pure vegetarian doesn't eat eggs, cheese, or milk, or honey, or dairy. It's all beans and uh, grains and fruits and veggies. Yeah, it's interesting stuff that you talk about uh, these two books that had this uh, that had such a big influence on you. Because normally, when I think about books that have really had a transformative effect on readers. Almost always, it seems to be stories, right? It seems to be novels, whether it's, you know, Animal Farm, Brave New World, 1984, Fahrenheit 451, like so many times, even on the right, if you look at books like, you know, books that are considered like canonical for the right, like Atlas Shrugged and Fountainhead and so on. Right. Um, it, it seems like we are a storytelling species. And one reason why people like books like yours is because it, it is a lot of stories about how you did this. And it's interesting to me that there are sometimes breakout nonfiction books that really have a transformative effect, whether it's Silent Spring, or um, uh, Diet for a Small Planet, or, or this book about the farm, like sometimes, or, or Animal Liberation, sometimes there are books that are not necessarily storytelling, but they really have a transformative effect. Um, have, have you thought about that, like this difference between fiction and nonfiction and what impact they, they have? Yeah, I have. And by the way, this year, um, Diet for a Small Planet, um, it's either this year or next year. They're putting out their 50th anniversary uh, edition. And so it's an update version. I'm looking forward to reading that. Mm. But there's definitely, um, I, I hear what you're saying. And one of the amazing things, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, but about Tofurky for, uh, to me was that when Tofurky came out, you know, it got placement on both fictional and non-fictional uh, TV <laughs> spots. Like, for instance, you know, we were on the Food Network quite a bit, um, you know, and they were going in or how it's made, and they'd come in with their cameras and they'd show people how it's made. And um, Ted Koppel and Nightline and all these other places would have, you know, serious discussions about 
vegetarian, vegan food. And this is like in the 1990s and early 2000s. But it also crossed over into the fictional realm. And you had um, like characters in movies, 27 Dresses, um, The X-Files. It was a answer on Jeopardy. You know, there's all these... Uh, oh, Seth, Seth, to be clear, Tofurky was not an answer on, on Jeopardy. Who is Seth Tibbet was an answer on Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah, as if that would help him. They didn't get it. And uh, it was the $400 question, and my friends were quick to point out that you're nothing until you're the Daily Double, so... Really? Uh, yeah, good point. Good point. Good, th- good thing you still have a, f- a few decades left so you can aspire to something <laughs> then. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely want to get to talking about that, but uh, about the it, it, how Tofurky became part of the really like the cultural zeitgeist. I mean, in many yeah. ways, for, for a yeah. long time, it, it was really used almost in the same way that, Kleenox, that like Kleenex or Xerox was used. That it, Yes, it's a brand, right. but uh, people used right. it also to talk about an yeah. entire category of, of foods for sure. But yeah. before we get there, before we get there, I just want to talk about, you know, the, the humble beginnings because people now, you know, you go to Walmart and you see Tofurky in there, but, you know, let's just talk like at the time, I mean, you write in the book, like people called you upside down man, right? Like what, who was upside down man and why was he so unlikely to start a, a business that would be doing anything in the world? Yeah, well, I was, uh, I've never really met anybody that was least likely to start a business or, you know, less trained than I was in business acume. So there was nobody that was um, less trained in the business ways of business than I was. You know, I, I had, after college, I graduated, you know, as a naturalist and uh, I had an eight year career as a teacher naturalist, all in um, Oregon or in the Portland area. And so that was my trade. And in 1980, I got a job teaching kids, high school kids up in Alaska uh, about the outdoors. So I worked up there for a summer. Thank you, Jimmy Carter, for having the CETA program that helped launch that and the Youth Conservation Corps. <laughs> and I saved up uh, $7,500, which was the most money that I'd ever saved up. And after I came back in October, I noticed that all of the outdoor school programs were starting to dry up. And, you know, there was this Republican wave that was coming on and Ronald Reagan came into power. And then anything with a the letters ENV in front of it, you know, environmental was like, we don't need that. We don't need that. So a lot of the uh, programs that I had been counting on to eke out my meager living as a outdoor school teacher were suddenly gone. And I was at a point where I needed to make a change. And at that point, I had been to the farm, I had found tempeh, and I was making tempeh in small little batches. I had a uh, old refrigerator strung with Christmas tree lights in a barn that I was making about five pounds of tempeh for people in the uh, that would come out to a retreat center where I was living. I was living in a teepee at that time. And that was really where the business started. But before that, when I, as soon as I came back from Alaska, I moved into a house with my girlfriend And we were in this about 25 miles outside of Portland, Oregon, in a small town. And this small town had a gas station, a fire hall, and a Indonesian restaurant. And I was like, oh, my God, these guys probably have tempeh. And I went in there, and I met the owner, Ina, and she was looking for tempeh and I told her hey I'm your neighbor and I know how to make tempeh and she was just like what mm-hmm. you know I've never heard of anybody in this country making tempeh I can get tahu which is the Indonesian way that they pronounce tofu but I can't get tempeh and so I said I'll make you some and she said oh 
yeah, but it's got to be good. I can't trust you, you know, to make good tempeh because I've never seen anybody make tempeh over here. So I went home and Kim and I whipped up a batch of tempeh. We came down the next morning. It was beautiful. Like when tempeh is fresh, it smells of uh, mushroom and it's this beautiful smell. And it has this white mold that grows on it. And a lot of people are going mold, ooh, but it's, you know, in, in the fermented food craze now, people have learned to accept more fermented food. So there's nothing like fresh tempeh, I'll tell you. Like we make great tempeh, Light Life makes great tempeh, but nobody makes as good a tempeh as you can make in your home. Mm. But we got this fresh tempeh and we laid it on Ina and she was like, oh my God, this is so good. Can you make 10 pounds more? And I was like, oh yeah, 10 pounds. Uh, that's a big order for me. But because <laughs> I was making it in the uh, refrigerator with the Christmas tree lights and little picnic coolers with heat source. That's really fascinating. Uh, well, as somebody who is a, you know, part of the tiny little minority of a sliver of 1% who regularly eats tempeh, um, I, I can assure you, I, I think it's great. And, you know, interestingly enough, on a, on a per ounce basis, it is, uh, my understanding, the highest protein of any whole vegan food. So not any, you know, plant-based meats that are used made with like isolates um, or, you know, yeah. fractionated oh, yeah. of a whole, of a whole food that is vegan. Tempeh is, has the highest per ounce amount of protein, uh, which is pretty. Not only that, but it's um, like, there's this scale of how easily the body assimilates protein and tempeh is right up there near or at the top. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really, like when you eat tempeh, as I did tonight for dinner with a nice curry that my wife Sue made, um, man, you just feel so good and powerful. And, you know, that's uh, a unique trait um, is just how that you can really feel the, the protein yeah. surging through your body and mm -hmm. in ways that, that no other meat alternative, uh, even like tofurkey or you know, the Beyond Burgers, Impossible Burgers, you just don't get the same uh, je ne sais quoi out of the <laughs> protein. So I'm still a uh, big yeah. uh, fan of, of tempeh. Yeah. And I'm still making it at home from time to time too. Huh, how fascinating. Well, so uh, before we leave the tempeh topic, I know we're really beating this tempeh horse after it has perished, but, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I do, I do just have to bring up one, uh, piece of trivia that you mentioned in the book. So, uh, you know, for anybody who has seen wild, wild, what was it wild, wild country in yeah. on, on Netflix, the story, oh, yeah. the story of the Rajneeshis who were living in Oregon in this town of Rajneeshpuram. And yeah. these people, for those of you who haven't seen it, I, I, I highly recommend it, but it's a, basically about a cult that engages in some pretty nefarious behavior. But one thing that they did, which was actually pretty good, it turns out, was that they were a major customer of Seth Tibbetts in the very early days, in the, like in the 1980s. Uh, and Seth, what's the piece of trivia that you give about them and Tempeh? Because it's a really interesting historical fact. Well, you know, they first came over, <clears throat> they tracked me down when I was in the, uh, I had rented an elementary school building in a small little town of about 17 houses um, called Hewsom, Washington. And the school had been sitting empty for seven years. And after uh, like about a, a year making uh, 100 pounds of tempeh a night in my local co-op kitchen, I moved the business up there and I was making now like 250, 300 pounds of tempeh a, night, a day. And I was working in the days. And uh, back then, you know, um, this is before cell phones. This is before answering machines. I mean, you had a phone, but if you weren't there to answer it, you know, you couldn't get a hold of anybody. So these, the Rajneeshis were all red clad and they stuck out like sore thumbs, you know, anywhere they went, they were all dressed in red. So two of these uh, Rajneeshis came looking for me um, because they had a guru festival coming up in July. And this was like 
about this time of year. And they said, we want to serve your five grain tempeh to the people that are coming from all over the world to Rajneeshpuram. Like this is really the early days of Rajneeshpuram. And it was really uh, kind of a lot of the problems that they incurred hadn't started to manifest yet. And so they said, we're going to have like 10,000 people there. So we need like 2,000 pounds of tempeh, which, um, you know, today would be nothing to make. We could do like eight or 10,000 pounds in a day. But back then that was like uh, almost, you know, two or three weeks worth of work. But I said, sure. And uh, we made the tempeh and we put it in my Toyota pickup truck that I had converted into a cooler and drove it over into the hot sun to the <clears throat> desert. And uh, they had this big cook tent there that they had built for the, just for the festival. I don't know, you know, where they got the money, <clears throat> but I think Sheila was one of the main, she was the, the spokesperson for them. And I, I think she had quite a bit of money invested she had come into and in her family. And so they would just build buildings. It was like a movie set. Every time you went there, it was something different. Like the kitchen had 12 refrigerator trucks, big semis backed up to it to feed all these people. And they had a big row of about 20 walks. And they made this unbelievable uh, stir fry, which I think is probably the biggest tempeh meal, even to this day, that uh, has ever been served in the U.S. Um, I'd imagine Indonesia might have had some bigger ones, but I don't know. No, it's got to be. It's it's got to be the single largest tempeh feast in American history. I mean, what I mean, you know, when are you going to have ten thousand people all eating an entree of tempeh? It's unbelievable. I mean, it, I again, you know, when I watched this uh, docu series on Netflix called Wild Wild Country, my jaw was just on the ground by how insane things got with this cult. Oh, I know it. I, I, I know. Am, you allude to some of their uh, some of their problems, but it's you know it's actually one of the only times where there's actually been an, an actual case of like bioterrorism in the United States. Oh, I know those guys would be in, they'd still be in jail if they did that today. So speaking of things that are running to this day, you know, you started this company. You didn't have any. Um, you didn't have any venture capitalists who were pumping money in. You didn't necessarily have any money of your own. But you did have some assistance from your brother, and you, you said your mother gave you an advance against your inheritance as well. But the idea was basically to create products for fellow vegetarians, uh, things that would appeal to folks who already had decided to stop eating meat. And instead, you thought maybe they would try uh, tempeh products or maybe tempeh-roni on, uh, on their pizza. Um, right. but, but at some point, you decided that there was going to be a pivot. And that pivot was going to be not just making these alternatives, but products that actually started tasting more and more like meat that you would be selling. And that's really how Tofurky came to be. So after years of selling tempeh and continuing to lose money every year, as you note in the book, uh, Tofurky ends up getting born as a brand. So how did that happen? Yeah, well, I mean... I was actually in the early 90s, I had been at things for a while. You know, the first nine years, I had made 31,000 uh, bucks total take home pay, um, which wasn't much. But then. And, and, and to be clear, you're saying your total take home pay for yourself over nine years, not per year, over nine yeah. years was 31,000. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so I felt like a failure as a business person. And I was like, this isn't working out. And, you know, I had, at that point I had, uh, on my $300 a month salary, that's what that comes out to. I had built a three-story tree house that I lived in and I had written some articles about tree houses and I had gotten a lot of response from all these people <clears throat> that, um, who lived in trees or knew they were like, Oh, the, my neighbor has a tree house. You ought to come check it out. So I was, in my spare time, 
driving around the country and photographing tree houses because I wanted to do a treehouse book. And everybody thought, oh, that's a great idea. I don't know why there isn't one. And um, eventually <clears throat> that <clears throat> I got beat to the punch because uh, Peter Nelson, who you can see on Treehouse Masters uh, show that's on Home and Garden Network now, he did a great job with it, and he he beat me to the punch. Did a treehouse book, does treehouse calendars, builds treehouses for some uh, you know rich people. Um, but after that dream fell apart, I was like, oh my god, that was my way out. Now what? I'm going to have to reinvest and make this tempeh or food business go. And in 1992, I had uh, 90. Well, I married Sue in 1991 and 92, Luke came along. So now I had a family and, you know, I had 300 a month, wasn't really going to cut it. And so uh, I had always struggled with Thanksgiving personally as a vegetarian. And what I had noticed was that at that point in time, I was going down to the little store in the town that I lived in every Sunday and I'd carry Luke on my back and we'd get the Sunday paper and we'd bring it home and I'd look through the one ads for use tempeh equipment or some pots and pans and I'd also read the Sunday funnies and what I noticed was that at Thanksgiving the Sunday before Thanksgiving there was always two or three kind of haha comics about Hey, vegetarians, you got a vegetarian coming over? Are you going to serve them white tofu or dark tofu? And hey, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was all uh, making a joke at it. And I said, boy, that's a funny joke, but it's kind of a good idea, too. And about that time, I uh, was delivering tempeh to a customer in Portland, Hans Robel of the Higher Taste, which is a brilliant sandwich shop um, to this day. And they, make sandwiches all over Portland. And he was making this stuffed tofu roast that he was selling about 25 of just to his uh, prime top customers in Portland. And he was getting 50 bucks for a five pound tofu roast and a tub of gravy. And I was like, oh, man, Hans, this is genius. <laughs> let's let's do something together. So, Seth, one of the stories in the book that I thought was so funny was about why it is that Tofurky does not have an E. Because you see so often people misspelling it. Even people who know the company misspell it, putting an E in there the way that turkey is spelled. But there's no E. Why? Why is there no E? Yeah, boy, if I had a nickel for every d-o-f-u-r-k-e-y that story goes but back in 1981 when i was delivering tempeh to the stores in portland i would often buy a tofurkey sandwich and that was spelled with a uh, e-y and it was delicious and it was a local company that was doing it and i always remembered the name the product was only on the market for a year or two and so when I met Hans and we had created this five pound stuffed tofu roast and I had made these tempeh drumettes and there was gravy, we were like, what do you want to call it? And, um, you know, people were the more sane people were like, let's call it holiday tofu roast or something serious like that. But I had been trying to play it serious businessman for 15 years and where it had gotten me nowhere. <laughs> and so I was like, let's lighten up. Let's try the name Tofurky. But back then, only 30% of Americans had computers in their home. So that was a problem. So how did they get a hold of a company and give them feedback or ask questions? There was two ways. One, you wrote a letter or a postcard. And then two was you called them on the 800 number because back then, millennials, <laughs> you had to spend a, a fortune to uh, call long distance. It was like something crazy, like 50, 60 cents a minute. And so 
the 800 number was very important. So what I wanted was 1-800-TOFURKEY, but when I spelled it out, it didn't match up to the letters because there was eight letters in T-O-F-U-R-K-E-Y and seven letters in T-O-F-U-R-K-Y. So I said, ah, I'm going to get 800 Tofurky. So <laughs> I signed up for it and it was actually, I got 888 T-O-F-U-R-K-Y. And that fall, I put it on the box. I put it in ads. I put it on brochures. And then I was sitting in the office reflecting on the successful Tofurky season. And I was like, you know, I wonder why we didn't get more calls on that one eight 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 Tofurky number. And then I was like, hmm, I wonder what happens if you spell Tofurky, T-O-F-U-R-K-E, and dial that. So I dialed it up, and uh, this woman answers the phone, and she has a hair salon in L.A., and she read me the riot act for about five minutes because she had just been getting inundated with calls. She was like, you're the one that makes that damn tofu turkey. I swear to God, if I ever meet you, <laughs> offered to send her one, but she wouldn't be appeased. So <laughs> I just sat there and let her rant on me for a good five minutes. And um, that was one of the downsides to it. I trademarked it and I trademarked T-O-F-U-R-K-E-Y too because we have both URLs because people still write, um, you know, info at T-O-F-U-R-K-E-Y dot com, but it still gets there. So live and learn. Maybe it was a mistake. Wow. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it's really interesting. Uh, so I, I actually just looked up who owns Tofurky.com with an E in there and I noticed indeed it is none other than Seth Tibbet of Hood River, Oregon. So good job on that. Uh, now, okay, you know, the idea was a tempeh company, but people weren't buying enough tempeh to actually uh, make it a profitable business. So instead, right. you start making the tofurkey, and it starts out as a, you know, really more like a seasonal holiday option but you keep on iterating and eventually you come up with this range of products. So help us fast forward through that time uh, from really spectacular growth of the company, whereas you had been certainly growing each year, but, but not in any type of an exponential way. Uh, what was it about plant-based meat, do you think, that made it so much more popular? Certainly it wasn't only the name, uh, but it was also something about that product. So why do you think it was that plant-based meat was so much more popular than tempeh? Yeah, well, <clears throat> that's a great question, but I think one of the drawbacks to tempeh is that it takes a little knowledge about how to cook it. When tempeh is cooked right, it's unbelievable. But because tofu was first to come on the market here, people tended to cook tempeh or not cook tempeh even like tofu. Like tofu's, I like tofu raw. I mean, it doesn't have to be flavored, but tempeh raw, not so much. And, you know, you, you know, can, you know I, I got to interrupt you, man. I'll tell you, if you take, uh, it's a little bit of a misnomer to call either one of them raw, since there's obviously a lot of cooking that goes into making them. But I know what you mean, where you don't do anything after, after, right. you know, after you buy it. But I will take tempeh, slice it up and use it to dip into hummus. Now, admittedly, I'm not known for having the finer tastes. Admittedly, I believe it would taste <laughs> better if you toasted it first. But as a good snack, you can just cut it into these wedges and dip it into hummus. And I actually think it's quite good that way. Okay, there you go. Um, but in Indonesia, you know, that in, in your stomach of stomach, Paul, you, you would, if I cooked tempeh for you in a little pan and sauteed it, you'd go, wow. <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not better cooked. I'm just saying, no. you know, yeah, yeah. There, are, there is a minuscule portion of us out there who do find it still a, right. a a good food to eat even without cooking it. Yeah, good point. But the point is that uh, there's very little ready-to-eat uh, tempeh, you know, whereas tofurkey, um, and especially when we came out with the deli slices, which came out in 1997 after three years of being in the holiday business, and 
you know, which was great because November and December were traditionally slow periods for selling tempeh. And then the tofurkey came along and, oh, here's the fast, you know, time of the year for us. And we would get all these calls from uh, ABC, Wall Street Journal. I put the Wall Street Journal on hold to talk to the Washington Post at one point, you know, and it was <laughs> all of this attention. And then January 1 would roll around and we'd uh, the phones would stop ringing and we'd slink back into our same old used to be. And um, so we wanted to expand into something. And, you know, we looked at the turkey industry and they said, oh, look at all this turkey uh, year round deli slices and sausage and everything. So um, just having something that's ready to eat and flavored, you know, in the Toferky deli slices, you know, you just rip open the package. And a bigger demographic than you, Palm Shapiro, <laughs> just really, um, you know, there's, it's so simple. And, uh, you know, it's been a staple for many a vegan yeah. traveling uh, across the country. But, you know, it, it was like a moment uh, right there. I think Tofurky galvanized, you know, because there were other uh deli slices or other meat alternatives but you know tofurkey stood out and you know because it had this bully pulpit of every fall you know getting all this media attention and everything the brand just was able to grow into uh consciousness once again and you know some from telling from fictional characters eating it and some from non-fictional point of view so it just went deeper into the American culture than any meat alternative had ever gone before. It boldly went where no meat alternative had gone before. <laughs> Indeed, that is, is certainly true. So as the company was growing, one of the things that you note in the book, Seth, about the success that the ways that you were able to make it eventually successful were that you repeatedly fired yourself. And that's, of course, to somebody who doesn't know what you mean by that. Quite shocking. How does the founder and CEO repeatedly fire himself from his company? So what do you mean by that? Why is it important for founders of companies to repeatedly fire themselves? Well, you know, when you start out um, bootstrapping anyways, you don't have money to hire specialists like R&D chefs, like maintenance people, like production people. and um, CFO, whatever, uh, salesman, marketer. So what I learned was that one of the, the big moments for us was as I shed, I, I would shed jobs and I would hire somebody that the, the job usually improved, you know, somebody um, that I'd, I'd hire that was a specialist in sales or a specialist in marketing. And that was, it wasn't that necessarily I was doing a bad job at those, but I was doing too many jobs. And so uh, I think having the ability to know what you're weak in and what you're strong in is a valuable tool for the bootstrapper and the entrepreneur. So, um, you know, knowing when to fire yourself and hand it over to a professional. Like, you know, when I ha hired the first sales guy that I was like, oh my God, the, the growth just went crazy because this guy would get up in the morning and he'd live and breathe sales. And I was living and breathing a hundred different things. So hmm. um, just even yesterday, I was talking to this guy and he said, you're probably a, a foodie and a really good chef to create all these tofurkey products. And I was like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I just knew that, you know, there was people better than me that could do a better job of that. So I fired myself from the research and development nice. job and hired a professional. So knowing when to do that is, is a key. I have often said that one of the keys to success is to hire people who know a lot more than you do about a whole variety of things, or at least just surround yourself with them in the form of advisors or, or in, in some other way, because the amount that you 
don't know is always going to be so much bigger than the amount that you do know. And uh, the idea of like, you know, just trying to go on your own and do everything, it may seem romantic, but in reality, it is a great recipe for success. And so, uh, you know, speaking of not going on your own, um, in the book, you make a, a great point about the fact that Tofurky is still family owned, that you have never taken venture capital money and that you don't have these uh, outside investors. Of course, uh, your brother, Bob, you know, throughout the book was the continual savior uh, for a company who for years of unprofitability continued loaning the company money time and time again or investing in the company as well. And so I want to ask you about that uh, for somebody who might want to start their own company today. And they want to make a big impact, but if they don't happen to have some uh, sibling or relative who is going to be in a position to continually loan them money, what would you recommend to them? Would you tell them that they shouldn't take venture capital? Would you tell them that they should just go for bank loans? Like, what would you recommend to somebody who was starting their own company and had no uh, source of family wealth to help them? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, yeah, I did borrow money uh, for the startup years. You know, Bob was critical in that and you know and he but we always paid him back and then we started borrowing from banks um soon and we became the darlings of the bank industry but you know that's a great point i'm not opposed to um venture capital and the space has really changed right now you know when you have the big titans of industry right now with um you know impossible and beyond and those guys, and even um, you know, Lightlife being part of Maple Leaf now, like um, it's a challenging time um, for sure. You know, there, but there still is uh, a debt financing way of going about it. And you know, I was just pretty stupid in the money uh, running business ways. You know, I, I think you can still get. Um, startup money and loans, you know, there's uh, SBA loans, there's all kinds of different products that uh, are out there. And there's people out there with money looking for homes, certainly uh, for it. So I'm more, much more open now to, you know, the idea of, uh, of venture capital. I mean, we were lucky to grow um, out of you know, the largest of my brother, but also, you know, through a lot of just bank loans and leasing equipment and all kinds of different ways, you know. But back in the day when Tofurky was, you know, really getting hot, um, what I noticed was that the, the, the venture capital community and the uh, big corporations really didn't know how to manage these passionate entrepreneur companies. Like Lightlife sold um, the ConAgra for um, like in 1998 or something. And I don't think ConAgra right, really knew how to take advantage of it. And they ended up uh, selling it several years later. But now, I think uh, that the the space has become such a big category in um, you know refrigerated and frozen meat alternatives that um, venture capital understands the, the space better, and so do some of the big companies. So um, I think like taking venture capital is a definitely a good way to go what i would say though is you know the more you can prove the concept on your own and the more you can the farther you can take bootstrapping from the beginning you know whether it's friends and family money or a loan or whatever uh the more negotiating power you're going to have when it comes time to bring on a, a bigger uh, equity partner and a play. So I still think that there's uh, a bona fide route for um, the bootstrapper and being scrappy and, 
you know, giving the proof of concept um, and sales and starting out small mm-hmm. and um, growing when the time comes, you know, right. bringing on people. So uh, I, I'm not opposed to venture capital now. And I mean, we'll see. I mean, this space right now is so hot and has changed so much. Um, and and we love it. You know, we want to see beyond and impossible and all these good tasting brands succeed because a it's a very big job veganizing the planet and right now even the in this hot hockey stick growth category plant-based meats are still one percent of animal-based meats so there's a long way to go and number two uh, so that's the altruistic reason is we want to see a vegan world. But number two is the business reason is that we are, it's easier for us. We want to see a hot category because it's easier for us to place our products in a hot category. And right now, the conversation isn't so much, hmm, where are we going to sell this if we make this product? It's more like, how are we going to make enough? of this product, um, you know, that we're going to bring out to make it. So you've got to be prepared for, for growth. Yeah. Um, what do you think that happened? I mean, you know, you write in the book that Tofurky was essentially, um, unprofitable for, I think you said for the first 18 years and mm-hmm. then <clears throat> things start to change. You start making some money and then you come in more closer to the recent years where things just exploded. What do you attribute the explosion of plant-based meats into the mainstream to? Do you think it was that the products changed? There was different marketing? Society was ready? Like, What do you think was the trigger that led to this explosion, for example, of plant-based meats in fast food restaurants and in the meat section of the supermarkets and so on? It's a combination of things, but overall, I think... Uh, you know, what we always say is taste is king, value is queen, everything else is marketing. And um, the products now have gotten so tasty. And, and just to be clear, by value, you don't mean somebody's personal values. You mean how much the, the food costs. Yeah, right. Got it. Um, so cost is queen, I guess would be a better way to say it. But, you know, the the products right now are so damn good and for so long they were um you know not as evolved and right now you know when you bring out any product it better be really tasty um because that at the end of the day um you know people want to enjoy their food and there's um all these different reasons that you can look you know, to be that you and I know to become vegan vegetarian, it's for the health of the body, for the health of the planet, the health of the animals. But you know, if it doesn't taste great, um, it's just not gonna succeed. So, I think that's what's really driving this growth. And I think you know, beyond and impossible, I've done some really good uh taste and te- texture. I, I would have to say, texture is a prince or something if taste is king, you know. I mean, <laughs> Texture is um, often harder than taste. You know, there's there's been a lot of evolution in the um, meat uh, alternative, like tasting uh, flavor industry. So, that, like, you can get any kind of flavor, but and flavor is hard to get a great one. But you know, texture is how it goes through your equipment and machinery and. You make like five pounds of this stuff in your R&D lab and then you try to make 500 pounds and, you know, you think, oh, I'll just multiply the recipe out and it'll be the same. But it's always surprising. You know, the scale up process is always surprising. So, um, you know, in in getting that texture, mm-hmm. uh, which we had to do all, every step of the way when tofurkey and the sausage and belly and yeah, it was just you know scaling up. So I think it's taste, though, to answer your question. Okay, that's uh, really interesting. Um, 
So, you know, one of the things that um, I took note of in, in the book was that Tofurky has this mission statement. And the mission statement is essentially the company exists to end the use of animals for food. And I was wondering if you now, looking back on the length of time that it took, if that's the mission, and if you had had access back then to more financial resources, perhaps from venture capital or whatever, do you think that it would have helped the company achieve its mission faster if you had taken on outside investors? Or do you think that there wasn't a different way to do it? So that's a great question. You know, it's, it's hard to say. Um, you know, we were growing after we hit a certain point, you know, and we were profitable and then we became very profitable. Um, you know, we didn't want anybody telling us, you know, who we could support or what we could do. But like I said, you know, back then, um, a lot of companies kind of got driven into the ground. I felt like, you know, that it was more common when companies got bought for the brand to not go gonzo into, you know, a bigger space. But, uh, you know, it would be like where where brands go to die. But now uh, I do see, you know, this culture that knows, I think there's there's more of a concept that we know what to do with this brand and we can get it placed, you know, because these guys are all trying to, the big guys, Tyson's and these meat companies, Maple Leaf, they're all trying to do their own uh, knockoffs, Nestle, you know, and, and these uh, plant-based is hot. So uh, I think that corporate America now uh, has come on board. I don't think it necessarily, I'm sure there was partners that could have been good partners for us, but, um, you know, we were just wanting to be in business for the mission of creating um, plant-based foods for the world, but also giving back to the community, supporting nonprofits. You know, we didn't want to answer to uh, investors so much as we wanted to answer to uh, the customer and and the public. Sure. Understood. So winding down, Seth, uh, let me ask you, um, you know, you've already uh, talked about some books that were influential for you um, in this interview, but for somebody who wants to become, let's say, the next Tofurky, somebody wants to start their own business, whether they're going to bootstrap or whether they're going to go the VC route, are there any resources or books that you would recommend or for them to check out, whether they be, you know, books or speeches or anything else that you would find influential? Well, my favorite book on um, just food and, you know, eating, the, the reasoning, the discussion of like what to eat um, and is Eating Animals by Jonathan Saffron Farr. And, uh, you know, I think that gives you a, a good basic philosophical basis for, uh, you know, looking at some of the issues behind um, vegan and vegetarian foods. So I think that's a good one because I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you, you need to have the mission at heart. The mission is very important to uh, Tofurky. And I think it's the secret sauce of vegan entrepreneurs. I have yet to meet one vegan entrepreneur that didn't have more than a money mission, you know, that had like this more altruistic mission and that includes you know ethan brown patrick brown all those guys uh i believe they're mission oriented too and and the mission is important because it really keeps you going when the going gets tough and gets you to your tofurkey moment so to speak but um so i think that's a great book i think Philip Wallen's famous speech that he gave in Australia. He's a ex-Citibank uh, executive, and you can Google that. I think is one of the epic speeches ever given um, about eating animals and why we shouldn't. So um, those would be two of my books that I think 
are good ones, you know. Sure. And, and, and Search of the Wild Tofurkey's not bad either, of course. Uh, <laughs> that is destined to become the next uh, diet for a small planet, no doubt. Um, uh, so finally, Seth, uh, you know, you spent a career trying to sell first tempeh and now a whole variety of, of soy products and from everything from roasts to slices to other uh, to chunks and everything else. But surely as an entrepreneur yourself, you have thought about other companies that you wish that somebody would start if it's not going to be you. So uh, again, for that same person who's thinking, I'd like to become the next sec- the next Seth Tibbet. Uh, is there a type of company that you wish somebody would start that nobody else is doing right now? Well, um, A, I got two ideas. One is I think that tempeh still is poised to be uh, a great product and it needs some R&D. It needs to go beyond the tempeh cake that people like you and I can enjoy and we know how to cook it or not cook it and um, get it into some ready meals because um, some delicious formats, you know, some sauces, uh, flavor it, kind of make a jump, kind of like tofu did when tofu started going into ice cream and baked tofu and ready-to-eat products. You know, we need more innovation in tempeh flavor because the product is just so damn good that it really needs uh, like a flavor overhaul so that People don't have to be uh, knowledgeable vegan chefs in order to enjoy tempeh. So doing more with tempeh is one, and um, I I still believe in that. One of the great things about tempeh is it's a kind of high barrier to entry. You know, you look at Beyond Burger. Those are pretty simple burgers to make. It's a very simple process. We have one now that I think is great. It's a plant-based burger, but, you know, there's probably... I don't know, 12 yeah. or 14 different burgers because yeah. it's a low barrier of entry. Tempeh is hard to make. So you figure it out and you figure out how to flavor it. It's yeah. a, a higher bench. It's harder to somebody to knock you off. Yeah. So have I, you, I'd like to see more with that. Have you heard of the uh, startup called Sunrise Foods? It's, uh, uh, have no. you heard? It's, it's Sunrise, but it's R-H-I-Z-E as in the as in the microbe that helps you to make tempeh, the tempeh starter. Oh, the rice and, yeah. yeah, so Sunrise, R-H-I-Z-E foods. And they are trying, I don't remember, I met them, but they're doing something with uh, trying to basically create a new industrial tempeh production and, and new design for it. So, uh, Oh, yeah, I, I do think I've heard of them. Are they Canadians? Geez, I don't remember if they are or not. But yeah. anyway, anyway, for whatever it's worth, there is at least one company in that space now. But what's your other idea, Seth? So is somebody to somebody to try to popularize tempeh, perhaps in the way that Hodo Soy has popularized tofu, right? Um, yeah. But yeah. what what is your uh, what's your second idea? Oh, I want a steak. <laughs> you know, I I think that uh, there's. There's plenty of ground products. There's sausages. Um, there's deli slices. You know, there's chicken. Um, even the chicken could benefit. You know, with from a little texture uh, redo. I think all of them. Uh, we have a really good one, but um, I, I no one's really hit on a steak yet that I've tried, and I think that you know having that steak texture and flavor would be an, a knockout um so i'm um, i'm really interested in that it's amazing actually that you know beef knockoffs like beef is one of the more intense uh planetary bad guy products um in terms of global warming so we really need to uh break that pattern so I would say that, you know, beef, beef and actually lamb too. Oh Lord. Well, maybe there's somebody listening who's going to be very inspired by your story. They're going to go out, they're going to buy in search of the wild tofurkey and they're going to start their own 
alternative steak or lamb company. So that would certainly uh, that would certainly be pleasing to me as well. So I, I, I very much hope it happens. So just to finish us off, Seth, tell me when people say that uh, when people say that tofurkey is a fake turkey, what would you say to them? I'd say that turkey is a fake tofurkey. <laughs> I don't know why anybody wouldn't, uh, wouldn't eat the real thing, you know, when they, why are they knocking off tofurkey? I don't get it. it, it will, uh, you know, I will say that, you know, um, like every year, you know, we've grown and we've made more and more tofurkey roasts and the press would always ask me, you know, in these interviews every year they'd go, you know, I know you're making like whatever, 500,000 of these roasts, but you know, there's X number 43 million something turkeys. You know, do you ever see the day when that paradigm would change? And I'd always go, uh, yes, I do. I think that you know that that day is coming where um, the paradigm will be tofurkey or a plant based uh, foods will become the new paradigm. And I was, it was always said with a little bit of wishful thinking on my part, um, just to be, you know, this cocky entrepreneur business guy. But now I'm telling you what, I, I'm, I'm a, it's not wishful thinking anymore. And, and I, I see this happening and, you know, just getting onto this um, jet stream of plant-based foods right now, I think is, the best advice that I can give to anybody and entrepreneurs out there because it is happening and you get the dream that you prepare for. And if you position yourself now and get in on this um, still ground floor, I mean, we're 1% of animal-based meats, then uh, you won't be sorry. Indeed. I don't think that people will be sorry. And, um, you know, I'm sure that there were many people in the, uh, in the carriage horse industry who, after centuries and centuries of them dominating transportation, never would have thought that they would become the niche way to transport humans around. And of course, that's exactly what happened. And uh, we certainly are on the ground floor on plant-based. Uh, my friend Christy Legawi, who runs Rebellious Foods, they make plant-based chicken. She did the math and showed it to me recently. And you know, if you're looking at it not not on a dollars basis, but rather on a pounds basis, her estimate is that plant-based meat is about 0.2 percent of what the animal-based meat industry in America is. So, uh, yeah. 99.8 percent according to Christie's calculations of meat that is sold is still coming from animals, whereas 0.2 is coming from plants. And just to grow to the plant-based milk space, which is now sitting at 13% of fluid milk in the United States is plant-based, just yeah. to grow, it would be a ma major, massive advancement. But of course, there's still a lot more work to do. And hopefully the path that you have helped to blaze, Seth, will be an inspiration for others, not only to get involved, in, but it will also make it easier for them because of the work that you've done. So thank you very much. Thank you for writing this really fascinating history of both your life and the company, Tofurky. I'm grateful to you, and I will hope that lots of people who are sheltering in place during this pandemic will order a copy of your book and take their time. Instead of Netflixing and chilling all the time, read this book too. It's a great way to spend part of this pandemic and to get inspired to go out and use business to do good in the world. So Seth Tibbet, really appreciate all of your lifetime of work. Thank you, Paul. And uh, yeah, I hope that we emerge from this pandemic. Uh, you know, with new ideas and fresher ideas of moving forward to a more sustainable, compassionate world. Thanks for listening. We hope you found use in this episode. If so, don't keep it to yourself. Please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And as always, we hope you will be in the business of doing good. <laughs>